Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today, we're continuing our series, Jesus and His People, with a message entitled, The Lord's Prayer. So let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 17, verses 1 to 5, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. In our study of John's Gospel, We've come to John chapter 17, and you might wonder if I've gotten things mixed up. See, I've entitled this message, The Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer is most commonly thought of as the prayer that Jesus offers up in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 15. See, that's the prayer that I encourage all parents to make sure that their children have memorized. That's the prayer that begins with the words, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That, as we all know, is the Lord's Prayer. Well, John 17 is what has most often been called the high priestly prayer. Now, it's been called that, you know, at the very least going back to the 1500s when a man named David Catraeus called it that. Well, he did so because Jesus' prayer in this chapter, especially in that section that has Jesus praying for first his apostles and then secondly for the universal church that will surely come to be, well, it seems to reflect Jesus' high priestly ministry. Now, in many ways, that makes sense. Romans 8, 34 tells us that right now, Jesus is at the right hand of God. He's praying for us. And that's what he's doing now. But on this night, when Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, the disciples began to hear Jesus praying for them. Also in Hebrews 7, 23 to 25, it says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, that is Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Then in the very next verse, describing what kind of high priest Jesus is, we're told that he's holy, Innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. That is, Jesus is not a fallible and sinful high priest, but a perfect high priest. And in that role, as we come to John 17, we're invited to sit in and watch Jesus in his priestly ministry, offering up prayers for his people. So that's why John 17 has often been called the high priestly prayer. Now, that makes good sense. And furthermore, if you paid careful attention to those texts, Romans 8, Hebrews 7, you'll notice that the high priestly ministry of Jesus is that ministry that he now takes up on our behalf in the sanctuary of heaven, as he always pleads for us, making intercession before God. But here in John 17, Jesus has not yet ascended. And so I'm going to say that his high priestly prayer is what he's praying right now as he's interceding for us. And by the way, isn't that quite a thought? That Jesus is right now interceding on our behalf before the throne of God. See, I can't think of anything more comforting and encouraging and hopeful than that one truth. I find every reason to revel in that. So we might say the prayer in John 17 is beginning of his high priestly prayers on our behalf. But but I also know that to call this the Lord's Prayer is to specify that it's Jesus who's doing the praying. See, the prayer we commonly call the Lord's Prayer is not an example of Jesus praying for us. Rather, you know, it's a model prayer that we should learn to pray. So in a sense, the prayer that begins, Our Father who is in heaven, is really not the Lord's Prayer, but it's rather 
the disciples' prayer or the believers' prayer. John 17, on the other hand, is not the disciples' prayer. It's the Lord's prayer. Here we watch him praying for us. However, the entire prayer is not actually Jesus' prayer for us. The first part of that prayer, that is in verses 1 to 5, where we see Jesus not praying for us, but he's praying rather for his own glory and the glory of the Father. Then and only after that does he begin to pray for us. Now, I don't want to understate the breathtaking truth that this prayer in John 17 is an invitation from God to come near and to listen as we hear Jesus praying for us. I find I want that. I need to hear that. See, when I'm in distress or when I'm facing my own doubts and fears or when I'm sorely tempted or when I've fallen into sin and when I lack faith or when I lose sight of the hope that is set before me, I can't think of any greater privilege than to listen in as Jesus prays to the Father on my behalf. See, I can't think of anything that I want more than to hear my Savior beseech and plead and appeal to the Father on my behalf. I mean, just the thought of that makes me want nothing more than that in the entirety of my life than just to hear Jesus praying for me. But there is so much more. You know, today as we study the first five verses, we won't hear Jesus praying for us. We're going to hear him praying for his own glory and the glory of the Father. And should you ask, I mean, why should I listen in on that? I fear you misunderstand the central point. Nothing but nothing is more important to Jesus than his glory and the glory of the Father. All that motivated him was that. Now, you might say, well, I thought he was motivated out of his love for me. Now, to that I answer, yes, Jesus is motivated out of his love for you. But if you think love for humanity, or you in particular, was the greatest motivation I fear you've misunderstood the central matter of the scripture. Psalm 19 verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God. That is, all creation exists to declare his glory. Or listen into Psalm 63, 1 to 3. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. See, I think there's nothing sadder than a human being who thinks there's nothing greater than himself or herself. You know, John Piper likens that to standing before the Grand Canyon, and all that you can think of is, you know, I'm so overwhelmed with how majestic I am. See, there's a hierarchy to the worth of things, and nothing but nothing has more worth than God. See, his worth is infinitely above the sum total of all things. There's nothing greater we can do in this life than to ascribe glory not to ourselves, but to ascribe glory to God. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed and then to be sent away to be crucified, let's listen in as he begins to pray. See, here I'm reading John 17, 1 to 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed." 
You know, Jesus had finished the teaching in the upper room, and the evening began with him washing his disciples' feet, and although John doesn't actually mention the Passover meal, that also occurred on this night, including Jesus' words that this bread was his body and the cup was his blood. And as John tells us all about it, he spends the rest of the evening preparing the disciples for what lies ahead. And what he says that night will prevent them from falling away. But now he's finished teaching them. And as our text says, he lifts his eyes to heaven. You know, some commentators think that it must mean that he or the disciples have now gone outside. But, but that doesn't seem the most likely explanation of him lifting up his eyes to heaven. You know, to lift up the eyes to heaven, while well, that was the common posture of prayer among the Jews. All that John means to communicate is that after Jesus had been talking with his disciples, he's, he's now finished, and then as his disciples watch, he lifts up his eyes and begins to pray. You know, his first words are stunning. Father, the hour has come. So let's do a little review of John. In chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus is at the wedding in Cana, and they're out of wine, and his mom tells him that, and he says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus' brothers, who don't believe in him yet, are saying, look, if you want to be famous, then here's our advice. And he says, my hour has not yet come. In chapter 7, verse 30, John says, his enemies were seeking to destroy him, but none of them succeeded. And John says, that was because his hour had not yet come. See, that was the appointed hour, the appointed time. Indeed, this now is the appointed time. This was the time that God would fulfill his purposes in the creation in the first place. And Jesus knows this is, at the same time, both the darkest moment in history, but it's also the greatest moment in history. What then should we do now that his moment is at hand? He would simply lift up his eyes and he would communicate with his Father. See, I imagine that as Jesus spoke, all the host of heaven would simply arise. And the words must have thundered down the corridors of the palatial grandeur of heaven. The great Messiah has just said, Father, the hour has come. As you know, Back to the Bible Canada is committed to sharing the good news every single day through our radio Bible teaching and a wide variety of audio and video resources. Well, buying time for radio teaching on stations from coast to coast is costly. It's a cost we believe is of high value. All of our ministries rely on the generosity of people like you. And this month stands out as critical as we look to close the calendar year and strong for the new year ahead. Our goal for December 31st is to raise $376,000 to support our ministry work please consider investing in our efforts to help people of all ages and stages to discover Jesus in the pages of the Bible. Call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. When Jesus mentioned that his hour had come, what was his first request to God? See, you might wonder, what would you pray? at the hour of your death? Or what would you pray, you know, when something that you've been planning for all your life suddenly comes to fruition? How would you express to God the the importance of that single moment? And the answer here is that he acknowledges that his hour had been planned by God long before the world began. But now, Father, this is the hour. 
you had planned for in all eternity past, and I lovingly acknowledge this hour. Let me interject here. You know, when you lie dying for at some time you will, might I suggest that you pray something like that? It is appointed unto a man once to die. Lord, this is your divine appointment for me. I acknowledge this is your hour. But let's not get distracted. Listen to Jesus praying. The first request is the most important request. Father, he prays, glorify your son in order that your son may glorify you. Now, now stop and come to terms with the most basic element of this request. What does it mean to glorify? See, in our day, it seems like a religious word, and we often don't understand it. So let's try an example from something that's not religious. Have you ever heard a criticism of a movie in which someone says, you know, all that movie does is just glorifies violence? Now, when someone says that, what do they mean? Well, they mean the movie promotes violence, so much so that it makes violence an honorable thing, something to be praised, something to be lauded, something to be promoted. It makes violence something to be noble. See, I think that gets at it. To glorify something is to promote that thing, to highlight it, to honor it, to extol it, to make everyone want to pay attention to that very thing as something praiseworthy. So listen to the prayer. Father, glorify your son in this hour in which I will go to the cross and suffer. Father, in this suffering and in the resurrection that follows, bring praise and celebration and great honor to the Son. Make what I do here to be the noblest thing that has ever occurred. Glorify your Son. May all praise be due to me in this hour. Now then notice, this is not the first time that Jesus has spoken that way. If you go back to John 5, 23, you'll hear Jesus say that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the one who sent him. So how do we honor the Father? Well, we do when we worship him. We do when we acknowledge that he's our creator. And also when we acknowledge that he's the author of all things and that we owe to him an infinite debt of gratitude for both what he's done and for the greatness of his being. And Jesus said, you should honor me in exactly the same way as you honor the Father. So now at the hour of his crucifixion, Jesus cries out, Father, at this hour, glorify me. But even as he prays it, notice the next line. Do it so that in order that, or with this as its outcome, that the Son may glorify you. That is, at this very hour when I, in obedience to your command, fulfill the work that you gave me to do. May this hour for all ages speak of the honor that's rightfully due to you and to me. May all creation celebrate the greatness of God because of what happens at this hour. Indeed, if you think about the request that Jesus made in terms of, you know, what's happened today, see, right now, there are men and women from every tribe and race and language on the earth that celebrate the wisdom and the might of God because of the cross. God is being glorified. Who is like unto our God that he would send his own son to die on the cross? All over the world, men and women are ascribing worth to God and extolling his might and his love and his mercy and his righteousness because of the cross. And in the future, at the consummation of all things, is it not true that all creation will sing the words of Psalm 113, 4 and 5? The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God who is seated on high? 
Nothing will speak of the incomparable excellencies of God more than that was done on the cross. And so that's the first thing that Jesus has in mind as he faces the hour. And let me ask you, is that surprising to you? I mean, years ago, there was a very God-glorifying song, and it was called Above All. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were there before the world began. Yeah, that was the idea. God is glorified. But then came the chorus, which in my mind wrecked the whole song, because the chorus sang, like a rose trampled on the ground, you took the fall and thought of me above all. Really? And we just sang that God was above all. But now are we saying that in the cross, God said, no, no, I've changed my mind. Now I think of you above all rather than my glory above all. And here's the truth about the cross. Above all, the cross is about the glory of God. Not Jesus was thinking about me on the cross above all, but rather Jesus was thinking about the worth and the wisdom and the righteousness and the mercy and the attributes of God above all. Father, since the hour has come, glorify me so that I may glorify you. See, the greatest thing about the cross is what it says about God. Now, the cross is not as one preacher said it. The cross is God's way of saying, that's just how important I think you are. No, no. The cross is God saying, look at God. Who else would be that merciful? We didn't deserve mercy, but he gave it because that's the kind of God that he is. All glory be to Christ and all glory be to the Father. Now then, having prayed that, look at verse 2. Here's why Jesus is asking the Father to glorify him. Verse 2 begins with the word since. The Greek word is the word kathos, which can be a marker for cause or reason. And here it says Jesus is the cause or the reason I'm asking this. Verse 2 says, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So let's spell that out. Jesus knows that the Father has given him authority over all flesh, which basically means the Father's given him authority over every single human being. See, that authority is absolute authority. The Father gave the Son authority to do what he wished over every single human being. He controls and governs all flesh. Now, while we're taking all that in, I want you to imagine a dictator in some country who's got absolute authority over the life and death of every person in his realm. See, most of us would immediately think, I'm so glad I don't live there. My life would be pure hell. I mean, at the whim of the one who has absolute authority. Indeed, we wouldn't glorify such a dictator. We would demonize that person. Ah, But there's the difference between Jesus and everyone else. The authority he has received from God is the authority to give eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. All that the Father elects, he gives to the Son so that the Son would give them eternal life. And that is why we glorify Jesus. We know that he's used his authority in such a way that we, the elect, have found mercy and grace and forgiveness and fullness and never-ending life. Who is like that? No one. All others use their authority for harm. He uses his authority to provide the very best. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Now look, just so that we don't get confused, verse 3 doesn't actually give a definition of eternal life. It doesn't say, hey, this is what eternal life looks like. Rather, verse 3 tells us how eternal life reveals itself or makes itself known. 
Eternal life is made known when we, the people, gladly acknowledge the authority both of the Father and the Son. To put it simply as possible, we get eternal life when we believe in both the Father and the Son. And when we welcome what the Father has planned and what the Son has accomplished, eternal life is granted when we glorify God by saying, I believe. Then verses 4 and 5. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I mean, those words should take our breath away. Jesus is praying, Father, glorify me through the cross with the same glory I had with you before the advent of creation. That is to say, the cross, the resurrection, the ascension, and then Jesus being seated at the Father's right hand. All of that doesn't add any more glory to Jesus. Jesus doesn't become more glorious after the cross. Nothing can add to his excellencies. He's always fully glorious. Jesus can never be greater, but now Jesus is praying that in the cross, the eternal glory that Jesus partook in, that glory, he says, may it now be proclaimed to all of the earth. And so from what we've read, this is Jesus' central concern as the hour has come. It is concerned for his glory that the message of the cross never be misunderstood. The cross tells us just how great a God we have, for our great God is merciful to sinners. How about that? Thanks so much for your message, John. You know, I think it might be true to say that, you know, as we walk as Christians, it does seem difficult to take our eyes off of us and replace that with placing our eyes on God. Why is that? Well, <laughs> I think we are all self-focused simply by, you know, nature, and it's because we're fallen. Um, you know, to see the glory of God as the highest good is so foreign to so many of us. I mean, many of us I mean, can't even imagine that such a world could exist and so even the way in which we tell the gospel story simply falls back into our, you know, self-aggrandizement. You know, we're so self-focused, we can't imagine how lovely God looks from the perspective of the cross. But somehow, um, that's what Jesus not only prayed for, but I know that the Holy Spirit does give us this ability to finally see beyond ourselves and see the most lovely thing there possibly can be. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. Bible teaching you can trust. The Advent season is a very special time of year, but it sometimes gets lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. Well, this month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as he walks us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with a very special video presentation entitled An Advent Celebration. An Advent Celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy, sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings good news and great joy. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministry this season, 
call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.